Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. So, David, welcome back from your holiday. How was uh, your time in Hamilton Island, was it? Yeah, it was nice. It was relaxing. It was um, getting around in a golf buggy for four days. Lots of fun. Limited to 20 kilometers an hour because apparently <laughs> there's been lots of very bad accidents on the island with people in golf in golf buggies. Right. Yeah. Alcohol-related accidents, people driving into trees, into water. <laughs> so yes, I've got them all limited now. So that that was fun. How was uh, how was Dubai? Dubai was fantastic. It's slightly depressing to come back to this shitty weather again, um, and I feel a bit rusty. And I have to apologise to Sarah, who, Sarah Hart, who's joining us today. I um I forgot to send her the Zoom link. I forgot to tell her we're going to be putting some of these clips <laughs> on YouTube. Um, so Sarah, apologies again. Um, it's uh, interesting to get back into the swing of things. Oh, yeah, it's amazing how quickly we forget. Yeah, <laughs> you're not doing. <laughs> doing it all the time. Jake, seriously, I can't believe you. That you were like, no, don't put on makeup. You'll be fine. I was like, are you kidding me? I should be used to oh David. He, he's the one with the makeup. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so today we're on chapter seven of the Injector Diaries. I can't wow. believe that it's uh, chapter seven now. And Sarah, thank you for joining us. We, I think we've sort of loosely thrown around a podcast for a couple of years and never quite got it over the line because of you know COVID and how busy we both are. But what, what what have you been up to in New Zealand? How how have things been since oh. you've got back to work and and it's all calmed down? Um, yeah, crazy, Jake. Honestly, I mean it's bonkers. I mean, so during COVID, I spent a lot of time doing um, papers actually mm. and <laughs> zooming, zooming around yep. writing papers. But then back to work, massive backlog to catch up on. So December was bonkers. Yeah, and then um, we always have a long summer holiday with the family in New Zealand. Came back from that. And was still doing catch-ups from that lockdown that we had from August to no August to October really, mm. and then um, ever since then it uh, that Zoom boom is still happening. It yeah. is busy, busy, busy. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So COVID means I'm not travelling. It meant I wasn't travelling overseas anymore. But it also means that everyone's here and looking at themselves on Zoom and mm. looking at their bank account and thinking, oh got money in there from the <laughs> summer holiday that I didn't have and I'm going to spend it on my face. Yeah. Would you think that's going to stop? Like now we are traveling again. Do you think that that Zoom boom's over or is it just going I'm, to self-perpetuate? No, I'm fascinated to see, I have to say. I'll be really interested to see because inflation is increasing in New Zealand. There's all sorts of things happening that might change demand. And yeah. so I think that the next six months are going to be really interesting yeah. to see what happens with that. I'll get mm. back to you on that You're one. You're the businessman. What do you think? Well, I mean, inflation was inevitable, really, um, because you've got so many supply chain issues. You've got increased labor costs. So prices are going to go up. It's basically inevitable. And then we're going to see the flow on effect of how that's going to affect housing because interest rates generally are the mechanism that the government and the uh, the reserve banks, or I'm not sure what you call it in New Zealand, will use to control inflation is to increase interest rates. 
um, which is going to put a lot of pressure on people in their homes and, and budgeting their their spending from month to month or week to week, depending on, on how you live. So it's going to be interesting. But then you've also got the other side of that, which is that lipstick economy phenomenon, which is that when times get tough, people still want to do things to feel good about themselves. And these treatments in some instances become even more demand. So I think we're in a little bit of un- uncharted territory. But as you said, it's going to be fascinating to see how it all unfolds. I'm sure we'll We'll be having a discussion again in six to 12 months with a lot of insights into what's actually transpired and how all these economic challenges and, and pressures are going to affect our industry. Mm. Do, do your colleagues who own clinics and things, are they worried about rent increases and oh, yeah. things like that? Yeah, it's, it's crazy because a lot of these places haven't started to increase their prices yet. Mm. And it's inevitable that it's going to have to happen because, you know, some of these businesses, especially the large chain clinics here in Australia, they they run on very low low margins with high volume. Um, and if you've got staff wages going up by, you know, huge percentages every year and rents going up, it's the consumers are going to be paying more. I think it's, I don't think it's, I don't think, I don't see how we get out of that. Yeah. So, <laughs> That's very, a nice depressing way to start yeah. the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. It could, as I said, it could be the opposite. I mean, I think people when, you know, they might be making decisions. I can't afford that new car. I can't afford that overseas holiday. I can't afford those new p- pair of Louboutin shoes or whatever it is that you mm. want to buy but I wouldn't mind getting my Botox done and I still feel good about myself. So I'm yeah. optimistic. You know, we've weathered an unbelievable storm, yeah. let's be honest. And like Sarah said, and every guest we've had on, it's just gone nuts. It's it's never been busier. And, yeah. you know, that was when people were literally out of work. I know they were given a small amount of money by the government, but not a lot, let's be honest. So I'm, I'm hopeful that yeah. we can weather it and, you know, let's see. So Sarah, I met you... I'm trying to think now. I reckon it was about 2017. You were here in Australia at Sydney doing an MD Codes event with Maurizio yeah. and actually yeah. Kath Porter as well, who we've had mm-hmm. on the show. And I think I came up to you, you know, I was sort of unknown injector then and I said, oh, this is awesome. I'd love to get involved with teaching. And I asked you a few questions and you probably thought, oh God, here's another injector trying to get into teaching. Um, but it worked. <laughs> you gave me some good advice and, uh, and here I am. I don't know what advice I gave you. It was really interesting that I remember thinking, Oh, that's so interesting because um, it wasn't something that we tried to get into in those yeah. early days. It yeah. was something that kind of got requested of us. Yes. And I thought it was really nice that um, you'd looked at it and thought, I really want to do that. That's going to be a good thing to do. Yeah. Because I do, I love teaching people. And I often my colleagues say to me, why do you like give away all your secrets? And why yeah. do you tell everyone how you do it and what you're doing? And I'm like, well, I, I just can't see how you wouldn't well um there's no point hanging on to what you do jealously like and uh, you know someone that wants to protect everything you may as well share it there's only one of you you can't treat every patient there's huge amounts of patients out there yeah and i learn as much teaching as as i teach you yeah know? so it's an amazing experience and uh yeah it's cool jake it worked didn't it yeah, yeah it did. Uh, <laughs> it's gone well well look i, I I've always taught as well, even when I was, you know, a surgical registrar or even a, you know, more junior to that, I always taught the juniors and I just enjoyed it. And like you said, you know, if you can give some something back to your own industry and, and make it better in some small way, then why not, you know? Well, I don't think you can sit there and bang the drum for increased um, standards and patient safety and then at the same time hold on to your secrets or things that improve patient outcomes and make injectors and all the stakeholders in this business better at what they do you, mm. you can't sit, you can't have a foot in both camps you can't say that you're about patient safety then be selfish about your knowledge yeah that's a really you, good point you have to be consistent right you have, and i think that yeah. people that don't do that are just 
you know, potentially exposed for being disingenuous. You have to be all about improving things and be part of the solution, I think. Absolutely. So why don't you tell us the Sarah Hart story? Well, I was actually, before you do that, I was going to ask you about the hive. Oh, the I, hive. I, I want to yeah. know who, who's the queen bee of the hive. I want to know who, who the, is it you, Jake? <laughs> Obviously, Jake. Well, <laughs> look, I, I, it's actually, to be fair, I started it with uh, a Dr. Sarah Tonks. We had Sarah yeah. on uh, back in the first lockdown. So Sarah and I knew each other from London when I, when I worked in London and we very briefly worked at the same clinic um, called Beyond Medispire in Knightsbridge. And, you know, we, we lost uh, sort of contact and so on. And then when we be- both became trainers for Allegan, I said, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we could communicate a bit easier and, you know, and I could find out what's happening in the UK and you could find out what's happening in Asia and so on. So we started it and just added our, our mates, basically, who worked, you know, with Allegan because we wanted to keep it quite uh, small. Otherwise, you'd have, you know, millions of you. And um, it eventually became known as The Hive because it was sort of like a a brain hive of activity and knowledge and sharing and, you know, all this good stuff that Sarah just said. So it's a WhatsApp group. group. Yeah. And there's probably about 50 or 60 Allegan trainers from around the world. To be fair, you know, some contribute more than others, but it's been amazing, especially through COVID. I think it was a really, really good support network. Um, especially sharing some of those COVID protocols and how Mm. to navigate the new world and so on. But yeah, what's your take on the hive, Sarah? I thought it was, I thought it came into its own during COVID when the UK was experiencing it. And over here in Australia and New Zealand, we really weren't. Mm. And it was a straight from the horse's mouth report about what was happening in the hospitals there yeah. that was incredibly useful yeah. and um, meant that we were able to get information about stuff, as Jake said, that was you know, really from firsthand experience of the doctors over there. And I think that's when it took off, Jake, because we all had this time off. We were on lockdown and we were sharing a lot of information and people were undergoing some emotionally difficult times over in the UK. The doctors there, it was was pretty grim. Mm. And we were emotionally supportive of each other as well. And then that's just sort of morphed into a feeling that we all know each other, even though we haven't met, and a, a shared obsession with safety and um, a shared kind of curiosity and where aesthetic medicine is going. Yeah. And it's, it's really fascinating. Everyone's got something different to contribute and it's a really multidisciplinary kind of, you know, there's dermatologists, there's plastic surgeons, there's people with different backgrounds. So um, yeah, it really is a, it's a fascinating read. Yeah. And actually, uh, I have to say, probably through the hive that allowed you to get involved with your academic papers that you were writing over COVID. I know you did at least one yeah. that got published. One was. Yeah, totally. So one was from the MD codes mentorship. Um, and then another one is, is that I was already um, sort of writing some papers with Greg Goodman and, and Peter Callan and we'd, um, uh, Greg invited all of the presenters from the ASCD conference a couple right. of years ago to be involved in the blindness consensus. So that mm. one had started up that consensus paper um, about blindness that was published in Aesthetic Surgery Journal. And right. um, we, were award- we were awarded the best international paper. We're very proud. Um, <laughs> and so it kind of went on from there. And 
um, yeah, we we've published some more controversial stuff since then. Yeah. Don't you worry, I'm going to be asking you about that when the word aspiration comes <laughs> up. Oh, later very on. good. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so why don't we wind things back a bit? I know you you studied psychiatry before you went into aesthetic medicine. So maybe just yeah. give us a bit of a, a flavour for sort of where you were at that time in your life. What were your motivations for getting into yeah, the industry? Was, was yeah, and it what was, it was and what it was so, like back then too. I mean, you know, what was the industry like back in those days in New Zealand? Yeah, it was. I um, so I was a junior doctor at Waikato Hospital and then went to the UK. Um, because I met an English doctor who was escaping the NHS. And <laughs> Sounds like joke. <laughs> we both, both went back to There's the There's a few of us, yeah. <laughs> and so he was like, ah. Anyway, um, so we went back there. I had actually done an ele- my, my training into an elective. I did in dermatology over in the UK at the St. Thomas, St. Thomas's and then also it was called the St. John's Hospital for Diseases of the Skin. It was like a um, tertiary referral centre. Very serious, very academic. Did that as an elective and went, maybe these aren't my people. Um, <laughs> obviously, I hadn't met the cosmetic dermatologists who are uh, a lot of fun. Um, and so it was, I was over in the UK locuming and you know where there are no jobs when there's the new doctors come on mm. and there are suddenly no, no locum jobs. And I was offered a job in old age psychiatry at Graylingwell Hospital and I, it was sold to me as being pretty medical um, because I was a medical SHO. Um, sold to me as being pretty medical because often it's physical diseases that are the problem. So I managed to secure a position six months paid at locum rates because they were desperate. Um, and I thought, great, I'm going to pay off my student loan. And I went and did this job in old age psychiatry and I just loved it. I was really surprised to find that I absolutely loved it. I had lots of time to talk to patients. I love talking to patients. I had a whole hour to do my assessments instead of the the um you know the the roller coaster and the, and the the production line of of the limited time you have to spend with patients in the in the busy emergency department and from there then went to Charter Nightingale Hospital um, a private psychiatric hospital in the UK and started locuming there and just really was fascinated by um, the kind of mind body interaction. Um, because I also then went on to um, the Maudsley Hospital working in, in the Lishman unit doing neuropsychiatry, where we used to see um, non, uh, we would see uh, dissociative seizures and um, psychiatric disorders that didn't have a function, you know, sort of the, the functional um, disorders. Hmm. And this was back in the early, uh, in about 97, 98. Um, and so learned again a lot about the mind body connection. And then came back to New Zealand and did some psychiatry, but um, got sidetracked into cosmetic medicine and started doing both cosmetic medicine and psychiatry at the same time. And cosmetic medicine won. It's fascinating because I, I reckon back then people would have said, these things aren't related, you know, that seems crazy. But now the more and more we get into it, that's an absolutely perfect blend of, you know, specialties. So did, did you recognize that at the time or did you think, oh, this is a bit weird? Totally. I mean, I remember um, coming back and thinking, I want to get into cosmetic medicine. I'd actually, the reason I knew about cosmetic medicine in the early days was I'd been getting disport in the UK. <laughs> right. So I went to I went to Dr. Nicholas Lowe, dermatologist in the UK, gave me my first treatment ever, 1998 with disport, and I bloody loved it. It was awesome. 
Um, I, lo- I looked a lot more lined than the, the beautiful skin of the UK girls. And I'm like, oh, God, I seem to be really wrinkled. I'm going to try a little bit of the support. Um, and so when I came back to New Zealand, I then sought a Botox provider. And they were absolutely lovely and very chatty. And I remember saying to them, what's this job like? And they just said, it's awesome. I love it. It's so positive. It is so interesting. And that just started a spark in my mind of this is a new area that potentially I could do because I'd always been interested in art and fashion and everything like that. And in medicine, it didn't really have a home, those sorts of interests. Mm. And then all of a sudden, here was something that combined those interests. And I was just very strongly attracted to the area, but it was so small and fledgling and not recognized. Mm. I just didn't know whether it had a future. Yeah. What is the, I mean, I'm, it kind of sounds self-explanatory, but I'm sure it's a lot more nuanced than what I'm imagining. The mind-body connection. Do you want to just maybe speak on that a little bit? I guess how you've noticed how the relevance has sort of changed and it's an area we probably should be a bit more aware of. Yeah. I think a lot of the treatments that we do in aesthetic medicine make people feel good about themselves, but you can't discount that. Yeah. Um, there's things as varied as when you put elderly people in an environment that reminds them of how they were 30 years ago. So if you have the music and the and the um, the fashion of that era, they start to behave in a younger way and it, it can influence them. So our bodies can be influenced by things that we're unaware of. The mm. way we feel can influence our health. And I learned that in the Lishman unit where we would have people coming in with dramatic seizures that had no physical basis that could be treated with CBT. Mm. And it just gave me an insight into how the mind could affect the body in a very strong way and how important it was um, to take account of what's happening in the mind as well. Yeah, I I guess that kind of... Well, it's proven by the placebo effect, isn't it? I guess that's kind of the the same kind of thing. If you believe something in your mind enough, you can almost yeah. will it into existence, and we don't really understand how it works, or maybe we do. <laughs> it's fascinating. I don't know, and I don't know enough about the placebo effect. I'd love to know more, but yeah. Uh, but what I experienced when I first started delivering Botox was that people would come back and they would be absolutely thrilled with what you had done. Like shining faces, happy. I love this. I feel so much better. They would make changes in their life that was very positive. So it was just such an incredibly rewarding area to be in that I it just took over. It took over my career. Yeah, that's fascinating. I got a personal question. How how or why did you choose Professor Nick Lowe? He, um, as far as I understand it, was one of the you know one of the earliest doctors in the whole of the UK to start the whole Botox thing. He was involved in yeah. some of the you know the the first trials, I guess. I know. So crazy. how did you choose him? I was called Crawley Clinic. Um, I chose him because of a magazine article. A journalist <laughs> had gone to him, and there was a before and after photo. And the before and after photo showed true change. And it was very, very early days, obviously. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. So I had a consultation with him because I thought this is obviously something that's actually clinically effective. And because I knew a little bit about the dermatologist, because I'd done my elective in dermatology, I knew that he had a really good reputation. And so I went in and had a consultation. I was absolutely terrified I was going to get a lidtosis. I thought I was going to be struck <laughs> down for my vanity. Yeah. And he went, ah, oh, yeah, probably won't happen. So we did we did it. And 
and there we go. Though, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, right. Was it Jesha Glabella you did at the time, or <laughs> no? Actually, he did my frontalis as well. So he did Glabella and frontalis, and it was that that taught me. Um, I then remember. Um, okay, this is back in the day. We didn't have <laughs> like phones or selfies or anything. <laughs> yeah. But my my boyfriend, my now husband, my boyfriend at the time, very keen photographer, and he would always take loads of photos of um, whenever we went out, we did stuff, and you know, friends and parties. And I remember looking at some photos, going, "Oh, my eyebrows look weird." And I remember <laughs> going back to Nick Lowe and going, "I kind of feel like my brows are kind of like down." And he was like, "Oh, yeah, that's because of what we did in your forehead." And it just sort of sparked my interest in um how you could you know influence the appearance of the face it wasn't just about taking wrinkles away yeah it's fascinating i remember when we had kath on probably episode 15 is a long time ago and and she said that she volunteered to you know almost be a guinea pig on stage when when she went to the states to have to learn about botox yeah kath Kath, porter sorry and and she said exactly the same thing she said the goal was annihilate all the lines and don't care about the eyes and and the (laughs) lids and the brows and so it's amazing how how what we have learned about the drug and and anatomy and everything has changed and you you must have seen all of that huge huge oh my god huge so in the early days, we used to work off those earliest clinical papers where you did injection points. You did a couple of injection points at the head of the corrugator and then a couple of injection points directly above, mm. and we were injecting really high. So we missed the tail of the corrugator half the time. And I remember patients used to come back and go, I can still frown, and we'd be like, wow, you must be immune to Botox. You must have been <laughs> exposed. Obviously, you know, it's, that muscle's still moving, even though we've we've done it. And seriously, it's about 30% of patients that would still be able to move after that. Wow. And we would spock everyone terribly. Yeah. So you imagine you had this massive medial brow drop and this compensatory hyperactivity of the lateral frontalis. <laughs> and so um, it wasn't until Michael Kane came to New Zealand and told us about the true anatomy of the corrugator and it was low and we could inject low and we wouldn't drop the lids. And that probably half of the drop lids that people were seeing are actually because we're injecting too high and getting frontalis. And he just opened our minds to the importance of anatomy and the importance of functional anatomy mm. and the importance of identifying where the muscle is and not going by this one centimetre here, one centimetre there. And and he he changed the future of Botox in, in New Zealand for everybody by coming to one conference. So wow. where did you originally learn? Did you go on a course? Did someone teach you? Did you join a doctor? Oh, yeah, my boss taught me. Um, so I walked into Palm Clinic. John Barrett was the boss. And... I said, I'm looking for a job in appearance medicine. And he went, oh, I'd love to give you a job. And I went, okay, cool, sounds good to me. (laughs) And so I started working for him and he taught me, um, you know, showed me a couple of patients, said this is how we do it, Um, read a couple of papers and basically just started treating patients. All we had, we had Botox and then we had Restylane and Hyloform, didn't Mm. have Juvederm. And all we did was nasolabial folds, lips, and oral comms. We didn't do pre-gel sulcus. We didn't do cheeks. We didn't do chins. We had three areas that we'd treat with filler. And that was it. Just to pick you up on a term, you said appearance medicine. That's quite a New Zealand oh, term. I've not yeah. come across that before. We call it cosmetic yeah. medicine. Here. Okay. Yeah. So Where's that come when from? When we first started, NZ Cam, you know how you called it NZ Cam? That was New Zealand College of Appearance Medicine was the first name. And that co- that term, I think, was coined by one of the Allegan reps who, hmm. uh, Richard, and he coined the term appearance medicine and the doctors went, oh, great, that, that sounds cool. Appearance medicine, this is what it's going to be called. And then we 
changed it to cosmetic medicine and then now we often call it aesthetic medicine. So mm. it, there's, there's been a bit of a, a um, change yeah. there in terms. Did you, get a lot, did you get a lot of, I guess, criticism or, you know, questions from colleagues who potentially saw this as, you know, as you said, like vanity, maybe wasting your skills as a doctor, yeah. doing Wakey, these. Yeah. Uh, like tight, like weird. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, it took me a long time. So I started doing part-time psychiatry training, part-time cosmetic in 2002. It took me until 2006 when, until I started. Then I actually fully pulled out of psychiatry because it felt like this was a completely unheralded area with a couple of small treatments, uh, lasers as well, um, that didn't have an evidence base and didn't have a specialty, uh, was, was unrecognized. Yeah. And so really it was, it was just a leap of faith and something that I couldn't not do because it was so rewarding and so much fun. Yeah. Why, I just what, found like I'd come home, felt like I'd come home. Why, why do you think that there's, you know, perhaps less now, but I guess back then so much stigma attached to wanting to improve the way people look, you know, all the criticisms of, you know, you should just be happy with the way that you are. But yeah. in th those same people go and get their hair done, they wear makeup every day, they go and, you know, know, pick their clothes out meticulously, they get manicures and pedicures. Why, why such a, I guess, a negative feeling towards improving the way you look just through a different modality when all the other ways that we as humans, you know, put our best face forward every day through other, other ways. Look, why, I think why, yeah. it's complex. I think it was new. Yeah. It was needles. It was a toxin. It could sometimes make people look weird yeah. if you did it wrong. Yeah. So when, when I'm um, growing up, um, as a family, uh, we get very early gray hair. And my mum was like, I'm, oh, I'm not going to be one of those women that dyes their hair. <laughs> so dyeing your hair was quite scandalous. It was like, oh, is she a natural blonde or not? I mean, God, do we care at all these days? Not at all. I mean, I could have foils. I'd be, oh, I want to have my hair done. We don't care about that at all. But there was stigma. Early on, there was stigma about dyeing your hair. And as the generations have gone on, it's become accepted Hair dyeing has got better. It's less damaging to the hair. It looks better. It looks more natural. I think a very similar thing has happened with, with Botox. Mm. I think changing one's appearance inherently arouses a, a little bit of objection in some people. Mm. And whatever way that you do it, it can become acceptable with time. Yeah. And I think now that um, it, it is becoming more and more acceptable without doubt, but I think... Uh, particularly as I think we get better at it yeah, um, and things get safer. yeah. And I think that it's a gradual process of something the younger generation has always grown up with. So they see it as something normal. Whereas when it has come as something new, there's a lot of fear and, and um, lack of understanding and, yeah. and skepticism about it. So I think, I think there's a whole lot of things that go into that. Mm. Tell me if I'm wrong, cause I'm the outsider here, but, my interpretation is the New Zealand market and and sort of aesthetic and taste is a little bit more conservative than yeah. you know Australia. It's it's a little yeah. bit like England and Ireland. I mean, Ireland has traditionally always been quite conservative, and England has always been the more yeah. you know sort of we're modern the, one. We're the Canada, you're the you're the states. Yes, the yeah, is, that, like is, that, is it true, or am I just making that up? Yeah, look, I think it's absolutely 100% true. And um, in New Zealand, people are much more discreet about anything. We Kiwis, we, we women feel guilty about doing anything for ourselves. Being down to earth is very important. Um, and I think that you, it's rare to see any practitioner in New Zealand um, promoting 
very bold results. Right. Um, we have a very outdoor lifestyle and um, I think all of those things mean that the results uh, that people are seeking here are more um, discreet. Yeah. And, you know, people are horrified to think that someone would know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of a bit unfair because the only work that I guess the layperson would know or be able to recognize is stuff that's been done that's over the top or overly bold or been done badly. Whereas all the hundreds of people that you might walk past every day who've got very natural results, but you would never know they've had it done. But that's what people associate is that over the top, you know, the ridiculous lips, the cheekbones that have their own area code. Um, that's what people see as cosmetic medicine when they don't understand that there's lots of good work done. You just don't see it. You don't notice it because it's natural. Hundred, hundred, percent, and that's a very, very common misconception. And I can see that because people with good work are not going to be walking around town going, "I've had something done." Something, it's something that you, um, you know, you share with your closest female friends after on a girls' weekend away when you've had a few wines. It's <laughs> yeah. not something that you talk about um, publicly and share with a lot of people. Um, and so I can see why that you know you look at the magazines. Yeah, um, it's generally people are being outed for bad work, the celebrities, when they have something really full on that's bad done, that's everywhere and it's fascinating to look at and we all want to look at it. But when someone has some great unnoticeable work, it's not commented on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, th I still think it's our industry's fault. I mean, I still encounter very regularly the whole taboo patients, the positive agers who are very scared about, you know, telling their husband, let alone friends or, or strangers. And as as available as these treatments are now, you know, there's clinics everywhere. I still don't think that that taboo has gone and it's it's not going anywhere soon. You're right. The younger ones, they're, they're completely fine with it. But mm. I, I wonder whether our industry is to blame because of, like you said, we still don't have proper training pathways in most countries. We're still producing weird results. We're still making it weird, even though it's medicine. We keep on banging on saying, this is medicine, this is you know, Dr. Led and blah, 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 blah. But there's so many freaks out there still. Mm. So no <laughs> yeah. wonder people are scared of it, right? I think I think that's really complex too, because I think there's a lot of things that contribute to that. Mm. I think saying no is really important. Mm. And learning, so, learning to say no to someone in a way that is appropriate and respects their judgment and their feelings is such an important part of becoming a cosmetic medicine practitioner. And some trainings do not teach that. Yeah. That's something that we do explicitly teach at the um, NZSCM training. We, we have an OSCE where they have to say no to someone. Uh -huh. Would you want to give us maybe, maybe let's delve into that a little bit, because I think it is, it is quite a difficult concept, especially for new injectors that yeah. are getting into the industry. They don't have the big client database yet. They've got bills to pay. They want to make a name for themselves. They've had this dream of becoming an injector. And how do you do that? I mean, how do you oh, have man. those difficult conversations? So do you want to maybe just give us a little bit of an insight into, you know, strategies that have worked for you or any advice for any injectors that might be thinking to themselves, yeah, that sounds great, but how do I do that without offending people or without destroying my reputation or getting a a Google review saying that Dr. XYZ or nurse XYZ was horrible. They were arrogant. They didn't want to treat me. It's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's difficult. I, I, to be honest, I'm just really honest with people. I just say, you don't need that. Um, but I'm lucky because I think most of my patients are older and, um, I don't get the pressure from the younger patients wanting really big lips. And I, I'm very explicit on my website that I am about the natural look and that 
has seems to attract patients who fit really well with my with what I want. So I think you need to be as open as possible about what your style is so you find a good fit with patients. Um, and I will, you know, occasionally I will get patients who say, do you think I need a bit more there? And I'll just be really honest and say, no, I, I don't think you do need a bit more there. I, I think this is what you need instead, or I think we should do this. And it's really interesting. I didn't realize how valued that is by patients until my husband has uh, is a medical practitioner as well, and he has a business called Wealth Life where he, he sees people for um, sort of in-depth medicals for businesses who are wanting their um, you know, employees to have had really good health checks. And he met a woman and said, you look a lot younger than, you know, you look like you're in great shape. And she went, oh, I've got this great doctor who I go to for my face. And best thing is the last time I went, she turned me away and said, I didn't need any, anything at all. That was just awesome. Saved me money. And I really trust her now so, because she she wouldn't treat me when I didn't need it. So I think that um, it's really it was lovely to hear that report and to hear that she really appreciated mm. when I said, actually, you're fine. You don't need that. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and if someone's struggling to understand, I'd actually show them the photos. I, I work off photos a lot. So I take photos and we look at them together during the consultation. And I would show the person at rest, at kiss and smile, how, for example, if they wanted more in their cheek, I'd say, when, if I put more in the, there, when you smile, it's going to look weird. And they'll look and go, oh, yeah, I've, I've never really seen myself moving. I see what you mean. It looks like it needs it when I'm at rest, but I'm smart. I, I totally see what you mean. I've seen that. I don't want that. Yeah. So I think combination of education and honesty works for me. Um, using photos to educate is really useful. And um, that is is my typical approach to it. Yeah. Do you, what, how do you sort of feel about that, the concept of perception drift, um, you know, where yeah. people, I mean, I've even encountered it myself. I mean, I've been having treatments for bloody nearly 20 years. And um, sometimes I'll even say to Jake, do you reckon I need something here? Like you almost lose the ability to be objective with your own face. Totally. I, I think it's really, we've talked about this. I, I've got a colleague who um, said in the mirror, it looked like she needed her lips done. And she worked in a clinic with female colleagues and they said, no, let us take a photo. And they showed her a photo and she went, whoa, they're huge. I don't need my <laughs> lips done. And what you see in the mirror is really different from what you see in a photo. Um, firstly, it's distorted. You know, we see a lot at the front. We don't see the contours. Um so I think having some someone else take charge of your face is actually really useful. And I think a lot of us injectors need to do that. Yeah. Um, and particularly when it comes to filler, which is 3D, and you just actually, you can't see it in a mirror. You can't see things accurately. Hmm. Yeah. I, I was going to ask you about this later, but it's, it's a good segue. Um, the whole hyper-augmented look that has become in some markets quite normal, especially here in Australia with things like lips or, you know, hugely sculpted cheekbones. I mean, yep. is it, obviously I know what you're going to answer, but I'm just going to ask the question anyway. Do you think that us injectors should have the power to say no? Or do you think that there is sometimes uh, a bit of negotiation that has to happen? Or, or do you, truly believe oh, that that's really interesting because my approach to what i'm willing what i recommend for my positive aging patients my rejuvenation patients is different from my edgy model patients yeah so i have um a group of patients who are actresses and models and 
uh, the models in particular are looking for an eye-catching look yeah. um, that would go beyond what is appropriate for a 50-year-old woman. Mm. And I think what's important is that that you educate the person to understand what you're doing. Mm. And we talk about the look, you know, for my models, we talk about the look they're trying to achieve. Are they wanting angular? Are they wanting this? We're going to accentuate this or that. We will leave some some um, eye-catching things that you might want, some people might want to correct, um, for example. Uh, you, you might have a, an upper lip slightly bigger than the lower lip. You might actually break some rules. But I still think you don't want the person to look augmented. And... I think that that is also not appropriate when you are treating a 50 year old woman who's wanting to look normal and for no one to know. So, so, so how, I, do, how do you as the injector, cause I, you know, I know your personality and your style. So how do you yeah. feel about that slightly edgy look? Cause I know, I know exactly what you mean. You might I'm totally have, conflicted about that yeah. because I would hate my daughter to end up like that. Yes. Um, so I think there's a difference between the alienization of faces, which is a concept that um, Dr. Stephen Harris, I think has yeah. introduced and talked about really well. Um, where we are unaware of the change in our face um, and that is being done to everybody regardless of what they're requesting and everybody is starting to feel that they have to look like that Mm. Um, and it's taking it beyond what a natural face would look like. That I'm not a fan of and I decline to do that. How does that, yeah. yeah, That's, that is, if, if that's, what someone wants, they're welcome to go to another injector, but I don't think that that's what um, is, a, is a good pathway because I think in 20 years' time, it's quite possible to regret that. Yeah. I, I remember uh, you were on stage and, and there are a number of other you know leading injectors. I think it's 2019 with Stephen Liu at his yeah. conference. And, yeah. and he asked a similar question, but it was about lips. And he, he went down the panel and he just showed... I think it was just the lip and he showed different ratios of top to bottom and, you know, different shapes and stuff. And he was asking all of you, do you think that's appropriate? Do you think that's appropriate? Do you think that's appropriate? And then he blew it up to the whole face. So you could actually see, you know, the ethnicity and and sex or whatever. And it was interesting how people sort of had to almost change their opinion on stage because you couldn't really answer the question without really seeing the whole face. And it got quite nuanced. And some of you were almost saying, just like you said, Sometimes I'm willing to break the rules and sometimes I'm not. And it just depends. So it's just a different, it's a difficult dynamic for injectors because I know exactly what you mean. You almost have to know the personality of the patient to see if it's going to work. It's not a black and white yes or no. It's, is this person going to be comfortable enough to live with that edgy look? And if I still think it looks normal, but maybe end of normal on the spectrum, I'm yep. happy as an injector to do it, but anything outside of that, it's a no. So it, it's it's a difficult question to answer. It is, I think if it's not in their long-term best interests, I won't do it. Mm. Because, look, I really regret having my eyebrows plucked to oblivion during the 90s and nothing's <laughs> yeah. going to take them back. And I would hate for any of my patients to ever regret what, what I do for them. And having been doing this for 20 years, I've seen people through from their thirties to their fifties or their fifties to their seventies. And I can tell you that you're just as vibrant and wanting a social life and to look good and dress well at 70 as you are at 50. And so we've got to keep a long-term view of this. Um, So my concern is that the alienization where a lot of the face is consisting of filler is not going to age well. Mm. And 
that would be my concern and that would be I also think that it um often goes so far that it doesn't look correct it doesn't look attractive it looks jarring not because it's an eye-catching beauty but because it looks artificial and startling and, and not in a good way yeah who were your role models how, how did you learn your aesthetic eye who who imprinted that view on yourself yeah. oh that's a hard one um that's really really interesting because I think that you often develop your own aesthetic eye from your own tastes mm. um I I have picked the techniques I use like a magpie little bits from everyone everywhere over the years and I used to talk about it as having a tool belt. You need lots of techniques and, and, and in your tool belt, you've got your favorite technique and then the technique that you use for that patient and then a technique you hardly ever use, but can be really useful in the right patient. And you pick a, you pick those from different injectors that you see over the years. Um, and you then build up your own style, I think. So in terms of the style that I look, it would be, I think, influenced by growing up and um, the the people that I saw growing up like the Cindy Crawfords and the um you know the classic beauties through that era the Naomi Campbells the um the, the 80s supermodel is is more for me my aesthetic than it is the the Kardashian approach yeah can you tell us about the New Zealand market in general in terms of like who's injecting how many of you are there I know that in many parts of the world particularly well I know in firsthand in Australia there's you know tensions between different groups whether they be you know plastic surgeons cosmetic surgeons cosmetic physicians nurses all that sort of stuff there is you know I would in some ways jostling for position or certain groups saying that they should be in command of this in this part this I guess niche industry what's it like in New Zealand and how do all you guys get along and you know what what are the, some of the issues as an industry in New Zealand that you guys are working towards in terms of, you know, compliance and safety and all, and all those types of things? Yeah, totally. So um, in New Zealand, we only have one organisation for cosmetic doctors, and that's New Zealand Society of Cosmetic Medicine. And that was set up over 20 years ago. So we had our 20 year anniversary last year with, um, so the, the first doctors who started doing these treatments back in the late 90s all got together and said, right, we're going to start a an organization that we can all be a part of and we want to do conferences and good training and we want to get recognized by the medical council. And so they did a lot of really, really good work that meant that um, they built this organization and started up a training program and put a lot of standards in place to make sure that the doctors at NZSCM were um, doing certain things like consenting the patient with a written form, taking photographs, recording the treatments, um, treating adverse events, um, that we shared information about ad adverse events with each other and supported each other. So it started off this, this way of doing that, that that's actually we, we now recognise is incredible, really, mm. um, because the Medical Council then officially recognised New Zealand Society of Cosmetic Medicine as providing the appropriate training that leads to a diploma in cosmetic medicine. That's a two-year diploma. And um, Paul Nola is our education officer. And as you, Jake, you know, Paul, he's got like this encyclopedic knowledge of the literature. He's He subscribes to all these journals. And so our trainees get the very latest um, information in the two-year training program that they do. And they then graduate as members of NZSCM. 
And so there's about, uh, I think there's about 80 of us in New Zealand now. Um, but you don't need the NZSCM qualification to work as a cosmetic doctor to do cosmetic medicine. You can, um, obviously, plastic surgeons and dermatologists also do that. Um, and a suitably qualified surgeon um, can inject. Um, or if you're from another specialty and you get training in cosmetic medicine, you, ju- you need a collegial relationship with a doctor who's either NZSCM, plastic surgeon or dermatologist. And also does cosmetic medicine. So, so it's a bit so, like, um, it's kind of reminding me of the Dutch way of doing things where there's a formal pathway, you just don't have to do it. Yeah. It just seems... Yeah. Uh, it's a formal pathway, but you, you don't have to do it. The funny thing is, is that you don't have to do it, but most doctors choose to. We've got a couple of ophthalmologists, we've got anaesthetists, we've got emergency medicine, we've got urgent care. It's really interesting. Mm. And so those, the ophthalmologists, for example, have no requirement to do the training, but they want to because cosmetic medicine is just such a unique um, knowledge. You know, the injective injection anatomy is different from surgical anatomy. Mm. And so, uh, and knowing how to treat the adverse events is very specific. Um, so there's a lot of very specific knowledge that you need that you don't learn in, in other areas. And so that's what we teach in this two-year diploma. No, I think it's fantastic. I, I literally this morning yeah. had a, a an ex-consultant colleague from the UK. She's a breast surgeon. And she reached out with the classic story of, ah, I hate the NHS. I want to do something different. How do I train in this Botox thing? And I, I was like racking my brain trying to I don't know how to tell people how to get into this industry, particularly in another country. There's just no pathway. So what you, what you guys have done in New Zealand is fantastic because you do have a pathway yeah. and you're supported by your colleagues yeah. and, you know, you're doing OSCEs, uh, which is sort of yeah. a practical exam. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing. But, yeah, it, it's. I, I was under the impression it was sort of mandatory. So mm. obviously no, not. No, it's no. That's what's kind of amazing about it is that it's voluntary but valued. And so, obviously, we're very proud of that, that it's it's valued, that, that you don't have to do it, but people want to do mm. it. Mm. And we're kind of, we're, you know, it's, we're like Canada. We're really nice yeah. in New Zealand. Yeah. We all get along really well. It's a small group. We have to. So, you know, we're all, you know, effectively, we're all competition, mm. but we all help each other out. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering why, you know, we've had this discussion, David, many times of what, what do we do here in Australia? Why don't we look at the syllabus of uh, NZSCM? Is that SCM, it? Yeah. <laughs> NZSCM, yeah. Well, look, Jake, we used to, and years gone by, we were talking with the Australians a lot and they wanted us to join them. Yeah. And the way that we got our recognition is that we are a subspecialty of GP, sorry, not subspecialty, we're a special interest group under mm. the GP college. Right. So we don't take anyone straight out of... Um, you know, med school, mm. they've got to be vocationally registered in their own right. So they've got to be, they've got to have done a postgraduate qualification already, I, you know, preferably GP, but we can also take ophthalmologists, you know, all, all sorts. Yeah. Um, and so that, but so we're a special interest group of GP and the Australian colleges didn't, didn't want to go down that route. They thought that we were um, unwise to do that. And they said that'll be the end of it. And but we we thought it was a really cool idea because we love the qualifications that GPs had. Mm. Or that you know, other special you learn you learn your patient relationships, you mm. learn so many different things doing your postgraduate qualification that are then useful later on. And I certainly found that with psychiatry, you know, the the psychiatric interview and and um you know, learning that side of things has been has only made my practice better. 
Yeah. And so have this, having this multidisciplinary input into NZSCM has been really cool. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to get into the politics um, of nurses or, oh, go on. or regulations, no. <laughs> but where, where do they fit yeah, into? You do. Yeah. Um, well, maybe I do. Um, but where do they fit into to the New Zealand market? I know here in Australia that, you know, of all the in- inject, injectable treatments that are done, nurses are responsible for probably 80, yeah. 80 plus percent. So they're the majority of people undertaking or performing these treatments. So how, what's it look like in, in New Zealand and how do you guys sort of all sort of work together and, and sort of present a united front as an industry? Yeah, look, it's nurses are really good injectors. Uh, with good, So the, 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 I choose nurses to treat my face because yeah. I think they're excellent. Um, and I think that the results that you can achieve as an injector are don't depend on what specialty you're qualified in. Mm. Um, I think that what's important is the training that you get. So nurses are a really important part of delivering treatments in New Zealand. And the way that they can do so in New Zealand is under something called a standing order. So it's a little bit different because I think in Australia, you have a prescribing doctor that's got to see the patient first. Is that right? Uh, Sort of. They've got to view them on Zoom. But yeah, yeah. You know, in a joint sort yeah. of consult with the nurse who's already done yeah. the medical history, et cetera. Well, so that doesn't have to happen in New Zealand. The nurse can treat the patient without the doctor reviewing the patient at all, mm-hmm. but it's under something called a standing order. So the doctor has to write a standing order that sets out um, all of the procedure of, of what happens. And so the consenting process and how the procedure is done. The doctor then needs to make sure that the nurse is competent to do that. And then that nurse is then able to treat patients and the doctor needs to either sign all of the clinical notes every month or they need to audit a percentage of those notes every month. And that's how it happens in New Zealand. Mm. And so that means nurses can work out of their own clinics or we, we all have nurses in our own clinics. Um, many of our members are married to nurses or yeah. <laughs> nurses as children. So it's a, it's a really close relationship. So... How does that work? Because I'm assuming in in New Zealand, things like Botox are still prescribable drugs. Yep, Botox is a prescription medicine. Absolutely. Right. So, so how does that doctor give the authority to the nurse? Is the nurse able to give a prescribable drug without a, a script or a or interaction with the doctor well, and the patient? The standing order is a form of prescription. Right. Okay. Yeah, so this is something we had to clarify. We, we, we were like, okay, well, what do we what do we need to do? And so we had to clarify things with the Ministry of Health and Medical Council have told us told us what's expected of doctors. Mm. And so a standing order is a form of prescription, and the doctor is responsible for writing the standing order. So you have this document that where you write out how things have to go and how it gets administered. So what your dosing is, what your contraindications are, what your precautions are. So the doctor writes that and then the nurse acts from it independently. And and how long does that standing order last for? And is it just for that particular treatment or does the nurse potentially work with that doctor on a plan saying, this is, you know, this is my patient, Sarah. These are the things that we're looking to do over the next 12 to 24 months. We're going to start with some talks. We might do a little bit of this. And is there like a total face plan or is it sort of ad hoc piecemeal at a time? Well, that would be according to the doctor who's written the standing order. Right. So the standing orders need to be reviewed annually. Right. And every patient that the nurse treats, their clinical notes, the, the doctor either needs to sign those clinical notes every month or they need to, if there's a lot of clinical notes, they can choose to audit a percentage of them instead. Right. 
And so it depends really on, it's up to the doctor which one they would rather do, whether they want to do countersigning of everything or whether they want to audit a percentage. I think the more you know the nurse, the happier you are that you just would audit a percentage. And then any adverse events need to get reviewed and you need to, the doctor needs to be available by phone for advice in the event, um, any reaction to the medicine. So same as with a prescription, right? the the doctor needs to be, um, you know, and the nurse needs to to be able to contact the doctor. So it's, and and, and there might be, I I guess, layers in between of advice uh, with the nurse being able to contact the doctor for advice about things, but um, generally, it's, so it's a monthly countersigning or monthly audit, and that's the way that the doctor knows what's going on. And generally, we encourage the the um, you know the it to be easy for the the nurse to get the training and advice that they need. Fair enough. Now, why don't you tell us about your own practice? Because I know that how long have you been injecting for now? So you said two thousand and ninety eight. You started ninety eight. You said. No, no, no. I started getting it. Oh, right. Sorry. Yes. Took me a few years. It took me another four years (laughs) before I started doing it. So it's about 2002, I think. I was actually trying to work. I was actually trying to look at records and work out, was it 2001 or 2002? I definitely was in 2002. Um, And so, yeah, like 20 years of injecting now. Um, So what do you want to know? So who's your average patient? I think you've sort of touched on it. Oh, yeah. How many many are you seeing a day? day. Where are you injecting? You know, how do you run your practice? Because I know you work with Paul. I'm I'm like a cuckoo. A cookie. What is that? <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm a little cuckoo sitting in a nest. So um, I, my patients have grown with me, and my my peak is age 50 to 54, mm-hmm. um, which is the you know that's my demographic, and then that's my peak, and then it's like a bell curve. It's, so the age group of my patients goes from 18 to 84. Yeah, peak at 50 to 54, and then on either side. So from sort of 40s to 60s is my biggest group, and then and then it curves downwards. So I don't have many 18-year-olds or many 84-year-olds, but, yeah. but a small number. And so I work, my rooms are at Dr. Paul Nola's clinic, which is called Ponsby Cosmetic Medical Clinic. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so I was sitting in the back of a taxi with Paul, and he said, I've offered on a new clinic. I've offered on a property at the top of College Hill. And I said, oh, not number 70 College Hill, is it? I've looked at that property <laughs> and he said, actually it is. And I said, well, it's a lovely property, that property. Do you think you'd have any room in that property for, for um, an extra room? For a cookie. Yeah, he's got, it's going to be a bigger space. I said, do you think I've got a spare room there? And he said, actually, I think I might have a spare room. And I said, well, is there any chance maybe I could go in that spare room? And he said, I think so. Um, and so he, um, you know, had a, he upgraded size of his clinic and had a bit of spare room. And he said, yeah, I think that would be really cool. I'd really love to have you on board there. And so what I've done is I have moved into his clinic. So I pay him a room rate to be in that clinic because all I do is inject, mm-hmm. nothing else. I inject only. I, I have narrowed my focus from lasers and um, all sorts of other things to only injectables. And so I see my patients in Paul's clinic um, and then I'm free to refer anywhere for any of their other treatments. I still refer back to the previous clinic I was at for some things. I refer to his nurses for other things. And um, Paul and I nerd out together and talk <laughs> a lot about <laughs> the future of you know, this paper and that paper. Um, and it works really, really well. Well, I mean, I don't know if my model's as exactly the same as yours, but I work, you know, within a clinic, but I'm 
effectively I'm renting a room, I guess, mm. but I'm representing Dr. Jake, I guess. So I've, yeah. I've never quite been clear what my business business model is, but how do you counter the people who say, well, why don't you have your own clinic? Why, why, you know, why aren't you doing your own thing? Why are you with someone else? I know. Yeah. Look, it took a, so Jake, you know, you're, you're a dad. David, do you have children? No, no, I don't. No, no. He's got okay, two cats. Okay. I've got two cats. So, oh, you've got two cats. Oh, I'm, <laughs> and about a hundred trees. Yeah. Children yeah. Okay. So Jake, you know how, how busy life can get, right? Mm. And so, my husband and I didn't want other people to take care of our children while we spent our whole time working. So he works four days a week and I, you know, sort of do three days a week injecting and, and some other stuff around that time. And we've got other businesses going on. So we've there's, there's a number of clinics of GP clinics and then a wellness clinic and other things. And as the primary caregiver for the children, I didn't want to be embarking upon my own clinic as well. Yeah. You know how crazy things get, right? Oh, yeah. The children are a little, they're amazing, but time consuming, And but they're only young ones and you want to spend as much time as you can with them. So um, my own premises is now in the pipeline. Oh, Ooh. interesting. Yeah. Very so good. to my children, so actually I listened to the, your podcast with with my, my kids in the car and when I told my daughter, <laughs> Holly, that I was doing a podcast today, she went, oh, is it that really boring one that you put on when I went to <laughs> Billie Eilish? <laughs> yep, like, that's us. So that's sorry, us. guys, you don't compare it to Billie Eilish and Harry Styles win out over you. But, yeah, well. But, um, yeah, so, so yeah, Holly, this is the podcast that we listen to. Hi, yeah. Holly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully this one's been more exciting because yeah. mum's on it. <laughs> and she loved the Michael Jackson one with Patrick Tracy. Oh, awesome. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's yeah, a yeah. character. He's a character. That was, that was awesome. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, so tell us about your new clinic then. I guess this is the world reveal. What, what What's the plan? Yeah, yeah, that's the world reveal. So it's it's a few doors down from Paul on College Hill. And at the moment we need to renovate it. So we're getting some plans going through council to renovate it. And it's going to be a shared space. So my husband currently, his wellness business is um, out of the same premises as a property lawyer and they get on really well and they have a lovely vibe there. And so they're going to be part of the premises and oh, then wow. I'm going to have some rooms there as well. You're going to have a lawyer there too, did you say? Yeah, so we're going to have a lawyer. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, there you it's go. interesting. It's turned into a strip of a lot of professionals where, right. where we are. So there's another few that, um, cosmetic doctors down there. There's some lawyers some accountants, various things yeah. like that. Yeah, Ponsonby's a nice spot. I've been there before. Very nice. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I love being there. It's, it's, it's a great spot. It's a, it's a cool vibe. Yeah. And in terms of what you're actually injecting, obviously tox and fillers, what do you, yeah. you know, what about things like threads, collagen stimulators, sort of, I know you don't venture into the laser side of things anymore, but like what no, about those, those anymore, other no. treatments? How yeah. do you feel about those? And, and look, yeah, threads, threads, not yet. Um, in terms of the lifting threads, I've been watching from the sidelines and yeah. I would like to see their longevity a little bit better mm -hmm. um, because I, you know, I think people are, are looking to get a, sort of one to two years out of it for the, for the cost. Mm -hmm of the procedure. So I haven't ventured into there yet. Um, and the biostimulators I haven't ventured into either. So I only at the moment use hyaluronic acid fillets dissolvable because yep. I love the safety of yep. that. I think that's really, really cool to have that safety measure. Have you ever dabbled with uh, the calcium uh, fillers as well? I mean, they've no, been around on the market for a long time. Um, I, look, I, um, 
No, I've never. Have I, I've injected Sculptra into the rep who <laughs> was selling Sculptra, who wanted her face treated, um, and then I've never injected Radius, which is available in New Zealand. Yeah. It's something I would look at, particularly for body treatments. Yeah. Um, but the uh, yeah, I love the fact that you can dissolve hyaluronic acid fillers. Yeah. It's just yeah. such a. Yeah. Such a get out of jail. Well, it's not a get out of jail free, but it's just it just really increases their um, safety level so much. And yeah. I'm old enough to remember it in MCAS, there was a an alginate, a filler based on seaweed that was released right. at MCAS. I think probably twelve or thirteen years ago, yeah. and it was gone the next year. Yeah, I don't know, um, Sarah. It sounds a bit fishy to me. <laughs> <laughs> Such a bird bird joke. <laughs> That's and your one I, for the I, year. <laughs> so I think I think the dominance of hyaluronic acid fillers is hard to hard yeah. to um, beat because you know you, you you can dissolve them. Yeah, I know that yeah. a lot of um, practitioners use a, a hyper a hyper dilution technique with radius and are using it in the body. I've had hyper, yeah. I've had Jake's done my hyper diluted radius in my neck. And I know that yeah, people are starting nice. starting to dabble with it a little bit because of it does give you a bit more structure than just, just have a little feel. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah good question. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> I totally agree. That's the totally the area that I'm interested as well. Yeah. For um, collagen simulation um, outside the face. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a tricky yeah. one, isn't it? Mm. Um, so actually, it's a good chance to talk about product choice and your role with Allegan, etc. So maybe yes. you know that's how I met you. How, how did you become become involved as a trainer of Allegan, and and what, really what do you actually do? Yeah, so they so I was casually asked to do a demonstration of Cosmoderm. So Cosmoderm was the human collagen yeah. that you injected incredibly superficially intradermally, and they asked me to do a demonstration at a conference. What year was that? God knows. I think it was like 2000, ooh, 2004, maybe. Uh, and it was um, Cosmoderm made by? I'm Cosmoderm not even heard of that one. I think. Uh, look, we used Cosmoderm on the first season of 10 Years Younger, I know, because I mentioned how it was made out of foreskin cells. And obviously, <laughs> no, that's wow. not it's <laughs> okay. not made out of foreskin cells, but the, the fibroblasts that make the Cosmoderm were from a sample of foreskin. Yeah, right. And so, of course, that was the clip that got shown everywhere. That, of course. Because I mentioned foreskin. Anyway, um, so that was um, still around in 2006. So I think it was a couple of years prior, yeah, maybe a year prior to that, um, that I was asked to do a demonstration with Cosmoderm. And they obviously liked that because they came back and they said, oh, that went very well. We'd like to talk to you a little more about being a trainer. And then Mike Clegg came to my clinic and did a formal session where he watched me inject a patient. And he got very excited and went, oh, she's a mini Michael Caine, which was like the <laughs> best. Um, it was like the best you know, praise ever. I thought it was really cool. So he watched me inject Botox and I was very big on identifying the muscle first with movement before you injected. Um, and that was in the days where we used to teach off-label in those days. Oh. And just to if reference Mike, Mike, now. Well, Mike's now a nurse injector down in Melbourne, but previously he worked with Allegan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. So he was he had a degree in anatomy from Allegan, and it was really um, interesting. We used to go on trainings together. So after I became a trainer, they approached me and said, would you like to become a trainer? And I said, yeah, that sounds cool. Why not? I don't really know what that involves, but I'm up <laughs> yeah. for it. Sounds good. <laughs> And we used to go on what we, we used to do a lot of in clinics. And so we would go into people's clinics and do training sessions. And um, it was really interesting because Mike would often get judged as a rep by the doctor as not knowing anything. And then mm. he'd pull out his anatomical knowledge and you could see them do a double take and go, oh, and he'd talk about, you know, pars modularis of the platysma and they'd be like, 
what? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so those those were cool days. And so we used to go around. We used to in our own clinics. We used to get Vilma and Jane and Steph used to come into our clinics and tell us stuff. And um, so I think I started. It was after Vilma and after Jane and Steph, and 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 I was then one of their colleagues and they were, you know, they were these big trainers and I was one of their colleagues and and now, you know, they're, they're bloody good mates. And, yeah. and, um, we're, you know, we have this, this, this amazing history now. So it was very cool because, um, I think being a trainer and I think Allegan providing this education was a huge part of the evidence base starting to become apparent in this area. Yeah. And, it was very motivating. You know, you're going to stand up in front of a whole group of people and teach. You've got to know your stuff. That's yeah. when you go back and you read all your papers. Yeah. I was just imagining all the moils going, yes, all the <laughs> selling the foreskins <laughs> to the company. <laughs> just going, yes. No, Extra revenue stream. It's one, it's one sample. Right. It's one sample. So the fibroblasts from that single sample. You know now what they make apparently. That's, you know, um, Skin Medica, which yeah. we unfortunately can't get here anymore. Apparently, those fibroblasts are now utilized to make the growth factors for Skin Medica products instead. Yeah, right. Which is a, a skincare oh. brand that we don't, they, they pulled away from us. Right. Yeah, I think it's still available in other countries, Skin Medica, but right. just it is, not. you can get it in the States. You've bought online from the States, but you can't get it in, in Australia and New Zealand anymore. Yeah, I, I, I never sort of got to use it, but I think even you told me you raved about it. You loved it. Oops. Oh my God, the HA5, amazing hyaluronic acid serum. Yeah, right. it was super cool. Oh, I have to um, yeah. maybe think about getting them on. And um, you go on, ask them why. <laughs> we could never work out why it got withdrawn. You've got to ask someone. Yeah, well, we'll, we ask the tough questions on there. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what do you think are some of the major differences between the way we inject here in Australia and New Zealand or some of the nuances that you've sort of noticed in your travels and, and sort of reflecting upon what that may look like and, you know, maybe where we do things better, where you guys maybe do things better? Oh, God, that's a hard one. I think they're really similar. I have to yeah. be honest. I, I think the injecting techniques Australia and New Zealand are similar and I think we're – Maybe a little bit different from the rest of the world in that we are um, quite challenging on of dogma. Yeah, that's good. So if you're at a conference, it'll be the Aussies and the Kiwis who put their hands up and go, I don't agree with that because blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so I would say that that has characterized our learning. I, I think in terms of injecting, I think we're we're pretty similar. Yeah, okay. Um, in terms of, of how we do things. I think that the... Because of the, um, you know, the, the the shared faculty, Australian New Zealand faculty is shared. I think that that the techniques that we use are very simpatico. Yeah, yeah, and no, I agree with that. Um, your role as a mentee under Maurizio De Maio. Tell us about oh, that because yeah. you, you sort of preceded me. And yeah, you know, I, I know yeah. that you guys sort of got worked pretty hard in your selection process. So just tell us about that and, yeah. how, and how it made you a better injector. Oh, God, it so did. Yeah, so that, look, that was a fascinating era that kind of seems a bit like a dream because it was all pre-COVID and things have changed so much since then. And so it was, I think this was the first menteeship and we had to send videos in and um, showing us treating a patient. And so we had a video and an editor and this was a while ago and my tech skills are not good. <laughs> so that was super challenging. And apparently we all had awful attention to um, 
uh, cleanliness <laughs> in our videos, I imagine, because we were, oh, we're being videoed. Um, but for for good or better, Maritza chose 12 of us from those videos and said, um, so we were shoulder tap to, to actually give a video. And then he chose 12 of us to, to be his mentees. And then we had sort of projects that we had to do. Mm. And so we had to do presentations. We had to do um, photos. We had to do um, case studies, a number of different case studies. And we would be on Zoom and he would critique us. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were all over the world. It was pretty crazy. You know, it was a plastic surgeon in France and there was a cosmetic medicine doctor in Taiwan, you know, India, all of these different time zones. And so we'd all come together. Often we'd be sitting there at midnight on the on a Zoom, right? So, Jake, this is you've been through this, I've, right? Yeah, I've gone through the same thing. I'm just curious to know because um, you know, give people insight. Like you said, you have to film yourself and sort of yeah. teach as you inject, and and also kind of not just do it, but look good on camera because you're effectively auditioning to maybe do this on stage in front of a, an audience. So yeah. you've almost got to be an entertainer, teacher, injector, educator, all all in one. It's not just about your injecting. Yeah. And yet you've got Maurizio, who who we know is, you know, sort of a master of what he does. He'll always find fault in what you do. It doesn't matter how <laughs> how, how well you nailed it, there'll be a multi- Totally. You know, you know, it's incredible, isn't it? I, I think we had um yeah. ten minutes on on a, a um one of us had taken a photo of a patient and they were a bit shiny. Mm. And he he told us it was 10 minutes of information on how to make sure the patient wasn't shiny in the photos. And you know what? Now I look at photos and I see shiny patients and I'm like, oh, that's not good. Yeah. You can't unsee it, right, Jake? You yeah. Can't unsee- I look at all of my old photos and I go, that's not good enough. Oh, God, the hair's messy in that one. Yeah. And, oh. and it's extremely awkward being ripped to pieces in front of, you know, in our mentorship. I think we had 55 of us, not maybe all on one yeah. Zoom at the same time, but still, it's kind of embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> You're being told. <laughs> Basically, but, but Jake, I tell you what, he is way more critical of himself. Correct, and and so, so you, you, anything he would say to us, he would he would say to himself. And the funny thing is, is that now when I look at things, I look at things and I think, oh, you're so right. Yeah. When the background is not black, and there's anything when there's anything distracting there in the video, you don't learn as well. Yeah, I agree. You can't see the stuff as well. And I was like, oh my god, he's so right. He's he's so right to be so. Um, picky about those things and and paying attention to those things because it does improve the experience for the person in the audience. Yeah. Sounds, sounds like the Sam, Simon Cowell. Oh yeah, of, um, of <laughs> <laughs> his injector's got talent. He's like, uh, that's a no from me. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of. He said worse than that. Trust me. <laughs> oh, really? oh god, savage. <laughs> oh look, I, but, but I have to say with Maurizio, uh, uh, you know, he's very very. Um, uh, what's the word? Detail he he can be quite blunt in, oh, in right. how he says things, but I I agree with everything that he says. It's just mm. that, you know, he doesn't want to mince his words. He's trying to do a Zoom for 50 people and you don't have time to be delicate. You've just got to say, these <laughs> are the things that I notice. Go and change them and you'll be a better injector. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I certainly learned um, a whole heap and I'm still learning. Um, yeah. But what... what, what um, how do you think it changed what you do in your own injecting room? Forget teaching. Do you think you've changed your style as a, as a result of being critiqued and pulled to pieces? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. And so I used to find it very hard to um, – it's hard. Talking and injecting is really hard. Yeah. And I'm now much, much more organized and to the point where 
Um, I hate it if things aren't exactly right. I used to be much more like, hey, we'll just go with the blue. Now I take along lighting. I take along a black background to do the photos. I take the photos myself. I can't stand at a conference where you don't have the photo up beforehand mm. so you can assess mm. the patient properly. The lighting really annoys me now. <laughs> I now... <laughs> Uh, but paying attention to all of those things is super worth it. In terms of in my own clinic, I think it's probably changed how I present more than anything. Mm. So when I'm doing a, um, you know, paying attention to what the pay, what the audience can see is huge. And do they have a good view? Can they see the plunger so they see how much you're putting in? Can they see the result appear in front of their eyes or is the lighting so bad that it's all just shadow and, and really it's a waste of your time being there. Mm, yeah. So I think respecting the audience is really making sure they have a really good experience is something that I've learned from Maurizio and how much planning goes into that. Mm. Um, then in my own clinic, I don't do the large volume stuff that I do on stage. Mm. I, I do much smaller volumes um, than I do. Um, but I love using the codes as a language to talk about things. So when I'm doing my consultations, I'm noting down in codes what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And then when I'm recording my consultations, uh, when I'm recording my treatments, I'm writing down in codes what yeah. I've done. And so it's a language. The MD codes is a language that is quick and easy and it is specific to injecting that I know exactly what that means. When I say that I treated CK4, I know exactly what that means. Yeah. yeah. Business, you're about to open up your own practice. Um, yeah. I'm sure you've learned a lot of lessons over the years working out of, you've almost been like, almost had training wheels on. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean like working out mm. of someone's practice, you've kind of totally. had your own business, but you've had sort of a bit of safety net there. So you're going to open up your own practice. Like what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned over the last few years or however long you've been there and yeah. how are you going to take those and implement them into your business or what are the, the things that you're going to do differently or, or yeah, just. Totally. Yeah. Oh my God, totally. Okay. So I'm very lucky in that I have a loyal um, patient base that I can take with me and yeah. I have an amazing lady, Macy, who is, um, she chose her own title, which is support angel. <laughs> oh, <nice>. Macy, <laughs> she's so cool. So Macy has the most amazing ability to be warm and friendly, plus also super organized. And those are quite rare things to have in the same person. And all of my patients go, you and Macy are the perfect team because <laughs> Macy will come and knock on my door if I'm running late. And she will say, right, Sarah, tomorrow we start at 9.30, not 8.30, <laughs> remember. So all of that, it means I can just get on with what I do best, which is delivering the treatments and assessing my patients, delivering the treatments, she does all of the organizing. And so she's front of house. She knows exactly, you know, when to interrupt me and call me. If there's any kind of side effect that comes through, she's, she now has enough knowledge that she knows that one needs to go to Sarah. That one, I'm going to be ringing Sarah on her day off about that. Um, so having that support staff makes you look good and mm -hmm. makes it a great experience for patients. Absolutely. I need an angel. Well, you do need a you need, you need, you need an, an angel. angel. Yeah. You yeah. need an angel, Jake. It's amazing. Um, and so I, I, um, I'm, I also know what, what Macy loves and she loves people and she loves things to be organized. And so I try my best to make things as good as I can for her as well. Yeah. What are some of the things you're scared about? Um, I am scared about being too busy. Okay. Um, 
it is a bit cray cray. I'm going. I'm uh, at the moment. I'm looking at having to close my books at some stage, and I'm I'm going to be. I, I need someone to join me, mm. and but I'm going to be incredibly fussy about who that is because, um, it needs to be someone that I would be happy to treat myself. I yeah. think that would be my criteria. Yeah. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. Because there's different aesthetics and there's some technically extremely good injectors, but if their aesthetic is not the same aesthetic, then it's not appropriate to have them in the clinic. And I don't ever sell to people. I don't, I yeah. know. Educate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just, I don't ever want to do too much. I, I just, you know, most of the time I'm saying, let's do a little bit less and um, let's, let's go a little slower. And it's really counterintuitive, but um, it really works for me. And it means that my patients trust me because yeah. I'm not trying to do stuff that's not in their best interests. Definitely. Um, will you still inject just three days a week or are you going to have to change that? Yeah, that's a hard one because, Jake, do you not reckon? I mean, I don't know. I've seen you doing your, you know, ex shoulder <laughs> exercises, right? Yeah. Okay. So my my saviour is Pilates. And I do Pilates a couple of times a week if I can. And so that's trying to get me out of my shoulders, get my core better. But I had a fascinating patient the other day who's a gynecologist. And, of course, you know, doing the gynecological operations kind of up into your shoulders. Mm. And she said to me, you need to work more because I can't get an appointment with you. And I said, oh, if I inject more than three days a week, how am I going to do all my other roles firstly? But also it's really hard on the body. Yeah. And she said, you guys need to, she said, I teach my trainees all the time about how they should be standing to save their bodies. Yeah. And she said, you guys need to start talking about that because if you're not, then you're going to cause problems. And I thought, she's a really good point there because we don't. We don't actually talk about our own fitness to inject and it's a really precise and tiring thing to do. Yeah, I think it's a massive thing and, and I've had to teach myself because I've got so many back issues and shoulder yeah. and so on. So I literally, <laughs> I've just said to David, I actually just got rid of my PT, but <laughs> I have been working with no! a PT for about a year and a half. And one of the things that we talk about every day is my standing position. If I'm right-handed, well, how are you going to counterbalance when you go to the other side of the bed and, and so on? So, you know, and you even see it in on Instagram, you watch people inject and they're sort of stooped over at a funny yeah. angle to go to the patient. Whereas actually I was taught yep. as a surgeon, the patient comes to you because you've got to be yeah. comfortable. You've got to be stable. Um, and, and you're right. You're injecting 10, 15 patients a day in weird yeah. angles, you're going to be suffering at the end of the week, let alone two or three years into it. So yeah, I Hopefully. think I think it should actually be taught properly, like formally. I think we do. I think we need, because with our, with our trainees, we, we, we're quite blunt with our trainees. Mm. We're not as Maurizio blunt, but we are blunt with our <laughs> trainees. We find sometimes that our trainees are a little bit rough and they will grab the face and, you know, stabby, stabby. We're very, very, um, uh, candid and say you cannot your patient is awake you cannot treat them like that yeah you know you need to be gentle you need to be turning the face we will we will say shoulder tap if we think that someone isn't taking care of you know you've got your armpit right there you know that needs to be taken care of and fresh and <laughs> yeah. nice what we need to add to that is us taking care of our own bodies when we're injecting yeah and i think that's something that we don't talk about enough yeah. Such a good point. Oh, yeah. I mean, you see it. You see, I mean, we're so, with what we do every day, everything's sort of forward-facing, leaning forward. We don't yeah. spend a lot of time strengthening our back, shoulders, you know, moving in the opposite direction. So, I mean, that's something that even I just, even though I don't inject just with 
what you do every day, you know, sitting at a desk, writing on a keyboard or writing, you know, on a, on a pen and paper, like spending mm. that time training, you know, the posterior chain of your body so that you actually, are, you know, you can get better posture. Because as you get older, you see people sort of, you know, they, they get bad posture to develop like hunches and all sorts of things. And yeah. it's like if you're, yeah, training Nailed back. It, David. I totally yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Pos- yeah. You're, so, you're so, you know, keyboard's exactly the same. Yeah, so actually, Maurizio did touch on that. I remember the first time I watched him inject. He, you know, how he injects using his palm rather than his thumb. And I asked him a question. I was like, "Why are you doing that? That seems so awkward." And he said, "Well, I'm going around the world each day injecting." 10, 15, 20 mils of filler, I'm going to get RSI and arthritis very quickly in my thumb if I'm not careful. So, you know, he was the first person I've seen who uses his palm to inject on on the plunger just to save that muscle fatigue. And I thought, wow. And so I've taught myself how to do that now because, you know, you need to do all these tiny little 1% changes that make you both a better injector, but a more efficient injector. Otherwise, you know, you're going to burn out. I'm going to burn out. I know all injectors are crazy busy at the moment and uh you know you don't want to have to quit after five years because you've buggered your back yeah absolutely or or, or ruin your posture um yeah tell us about some mistakes you've made did it did you ever look back and think oh my god i can't believe Where i was do doing I this start? doing that other oh business or injecting okay I, I actually remember the first mistake i made was that that i learned a lot from um i did my first set of lips on the receptionist at the clinic i was working at and we 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 did we did a good job. We were pretty proud, you know, the receptionists and I. We were like, yeah, man, that looks good. <laughs> and some of the other staff were like, wow, her lips look good. So I was like, I'm so good. <laughs> and then six months later, we were like, okay, six months. This is how long it lasts. It's six months. And, and the receptionist was like, I think we need to do these again. So I thought, okay, well, that treatment worked. Therefore, I'm going to do the exact same thing again. And at the time, we used a technique where we would outline the vermilion border and then we'd do these horizontal threads. And so I thought, right, well, if it works so well the first time, I'm going to do the exact same thing. And so I did the exact same treatment six months after first treating her lips and I redid her vermilion border and I redid it all and it didn't look the same. Mm. Her border looked thicker. And I remember thinking, that's so weird. It's supposed to only last six months, but it kind of looks like she's got a double dose in her border and I don't really like it as much, but it's almost like it's gone from the red part of her lip. And I remember looking at that and thinking, okay, that's a lesson. And I need to, you know, filler doesn't dissolve or or break down at exactly the same rate in exactly the same places. And you can't just replicate the same treatment that you did the first time to get the same result. And that was the sort of the first inkling I had that, um, that you have to assess every single time you do a treatment. Yeah. And that filler can last longer in some reason areas than others, and it can last longer than six months, even though we used to think it lasted six months. Yeah. So there was kind of opening up a whole world of stuff that we talk about a lot now, right? I imagine that mistake is happening day in, day out across ninety five percent of clinics still. <laughs> yeah. Because um, people can I just try copy and, tell and paste, my don't they? Mistake? Autopilot. I'll come back. I, I see patients. I think it's fascinating how long filler can last, and yeah. that we know now that it lasts a lot longer than six months. Yeah. What's your, what's your sort of stance on um, using ultrasound for dissolving, dealing with um, occlusions potentially? You know, pre scanning for high risk areas, so like you know yeah. the temples and Look, so I, on. I think. 
it's fascinating. It's a fascinating area and it's on my list of what I want to learn. So I look, I've worked with ultrasound a lot because I used to do ultrasound guided sclerotherapy where you are basically trying to inject into vessels yeah. and it's, you've got an ultrasonographer yep. with you showing mm-hmm. you the whole time. Yep. And from that, I learned firstly, ultrasound is a long learning curve. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's quite a difficult thing to do, particularly it was hard enough to do with vessels that were sort of one to three millimeters in size in the leg. It's going to, it's, it's a lot harder in the face. Uh, I think it's a tool. I really want to learn it, but I know that it's going to take quite a lot of effort. Mm. And I think that it's going to be incredibly useful to advance our knowledge yep. about what is happening under the surface with um, a whole variety of things with adverse events, but with also safety, as mm. you, you're saying, identifying vessels first. I I think it's got a future um, and I'm prepared to put some work in. Yeah. Well, we just had um, Dr. Steve Harris on a couple of weeks ago and he basically implemented it into his practice now as a, as a pretty standard thing. Um, and yeah. he reckons that the learning curve was was difficult, but it, I mean, he's, he seems to be fairly comfortable with it. He's in the Clarius machine. I think you mentioned, and it's oh, yeah. interesting, yeah. Because yeah. um, so Paul has got the Philips Lumify, right? And that's the one that Leonie Shelker um, yes. was interested in. And so I, I was booked into the Melbourne um, ultrasound workshop that was supposed to happen in that first lockdown, but two years ago, and since then there's been no conferences. So we're yeah, all kind right. of like amping to go and learn it all. <laughs> Paul's Paul Nolder's wife Fleur is a radiologist, um, so that's that's quite helpful. Um, and so, just from talking to people, I think what you need is you need to know the basics, and then you just need to do it on as many patients yeah. as you can. Yeah, you need to learn by doing. Yeah, totally agree. Seems like an, an inevitable part of our future in this industry. Mm. Yeah, and it's going to be even harder because there's not that many experts around to ask questions or or get some hands-on advice. You know, so when you learn to inject, there's there's quite a few people to mm. ask for advice for now, and you've got WhatsApp groups and well, so on. You've got radiologists who understand how to read a uh, like a uh, um, read ultrasound. Mm. But they don't yeah. know anything about injecting principles, and then you've got injectors that know everything about injecting, but don't know anything about ultrasound. So it's almost like yeah. we've got to educate both, yeah, educate each other so that we can integrate them into into the one practice. Yeah, that's the problem. You know, speaking to ultrasonographers, they rarely go into a face. They'll do abdomens and yeah. chests yeah. and legs and God knows what else to drain things. But yeah. they're not, very rarely doing faces. So yeah. Their understanding of what they're looking at is not always great. Yeah, well, it's kind of funny when you look back at the industry where, you know, 20 years ago, we we're just injecting with impunity laser, in the laser label area and, and yep. we, no one, we had <laughs> no concept. Of, yeah, no, no, <laughs> no concept. No first thing that you'd teach a beginner was how to inject the nasal labial with a sharp needle. Yeah. So we had yep. no blissfully unaware that Parallel we were just the it's like swimming in an ocean yep. full of sharks, but you don't know that they're there. <laughs> yes. um, yep. And now we know they're there. And now we're just trying to, so yeah. I, th- I think it'll And now just we're be- obsessed with them. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, where do you see our career going in the next five to 10 years, Sarah? We've mentioned ultrasound, but do you think there's going to be any game-changing new products, um, oh the God, way we always. approach things? Like what, what have you seen that's got you excited? Um, okay, so um, I, I think there will always be new products. I think that there is such... Um, fast R&D in this area. Mm. Um, so what I'm quite interested in at the moment is the skin booster side of things. You know, you guys are getting Profilo soon. That's been really fun. Yeah, we, yeah. we were just Dylan. talking about this morning, um, actually. Yeah, 
What was that? We were just talking about that this morning. We're going to yeah. potentially be having a discussion around that at some point soon. We may. Let's not yeah. give any dates because yeah. we don't know. Yes. Coming <laughs> <laughs> soon, we hope. Yes. Um, I, so I think this, the skin quality side of things yep. is an area that is yet to be explored. So as you're saying, diluted calcium products, um, the hyaluronic acid products for the skin boosting, skin quality side of things. Um, I think that there's progress to be made in that area. I think the really interesting new toxins coming out, the longer lasting ones, mm-hmm. the shorter lasting ones. I think the um, elastogen company, yep. you know, the, the, the combinations there, uh, the combinations of the hyaluronic acid and the calcium hydroxyapatite. I think there's so many new things coming out that, um, you know, you, you can't keep up. You just, oh, I want to learn about that. I want to learn about that. So it's constant. Yeah. And so I think that some of it is refinements of what we had previously. Um, stuff that's genuinely groundbreaking, I think, is rare. Um, but I think that our expectations are going to keep increasing, Jake, in terms of the results that we can deliver. And I think it's just constant and endless learning. Um, I would really like to see um, more safety yeah. Um, we, us going on more about safety and I think ultrasound hopefully telling us a bit more about this massive de- debate between aspiration and not aspiration. Oh, we're going to ask you about that in a second. <laughs> yeah, well, towards the end of every Injector Diaries uh, episode, we ask um, everyone a, a, a set list of questions. They're just like a quick yeah. fire response. Don't have to think about it too much. Um, so we'll ask you about uh, aspiration in a moment. We'll start off with this one, which is um, what is your number one toxin and and why and why why oh yeah uh, Botox um, I used to use Dysport as well but it just the whole sort of changing the units and yep. things just got all a little bit too much yep. had to choose one of them and at the time a lot of the papers were coming out about Botox yep. and the there was a lot more um, education available so this is back in uh, probably 2005 2006 right and so I've just been Botox ever since it's I can pretty much do it with my eyes closed there you go agreed um, oh wow what's your favorite filler and why and i don't mean brand but specific yeah yeah what? specific color okay so i love juvederm ultra so when i look at my numbers i use a lot of juvederm ultra and that's because that's really what my own lips technique was developed with was juvederm ultra and I still think it gives a particular look, particularly to the lower lip, a sort of a rounded, glossy look that I think is gorgeous. Um, apparently, that's what Kylie Jenner has in her lips. Oh, well, well, that makes it all good. Then. There we go. Then that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, that's, that's my thing. I know that some people sort of a, a, a side question off that in terms of migration. I know that there have been people that say that Ultra does migrate. I know we you know, Steve Harris said that he hasn't he hasn't found that he likes Ultra. He, he likes Ultra, Ultra too, but you haven't found that. Yeah, Steve Harris is fascinating. I mean, yeah. it's he's when I look at his stuff, I'm like, oh my god, he's probably the the most close person to aesthetics on lips that yeah that I've ever encountered and in terms of you know we've I've, we don't know each other at all but we've kind of from completely different sides of the world got a similarity about our aesthetic and our techniques and it's quite interesting that we both use ultra now I don't put ultra directly in the vermilion border right I don't do that little thread along the tube type thing I do the same as what I believe he does. Um, I don't. I haven't seen his technique in detail. I'm just going from his Instagram. Um, in that, I put it in the red vermilion, slightly underneath the border, and I usually massage it up into the border to make sure it's crisp. Okay. Yeah. 
So I think if you do a, a, a if you do it directly along the border, then I think it can look too fat with Juvederm Ultra. So I don't do that. Yeah, fair. Um, Favorite cannula make and size and why? Oh yeah, that's easy. You're, I'm a, I bet you're the same, Jake. Yes, you know. Let me get yes, PSK. PSK, <laughs> 25 gauge, 38 millimeter. Cannot do without it. Use boxes. I, I have to say the 38 millimeter is certainly easier to use obviously because it's a bit shorter. You can control it. I, yep. I just buy 50s because I can reach a bit further and, oh, and I like doing my tear trick. Sacrilege. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I, I, I'm one of those weirdos they with the longer cannula. They it's not about the size of the cannula. You know, it's... <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, please. Oh, okay, well. You go for it. To aspirate or not not to aspirate? That That okay. is the question and, and why. That's, and you've only got so three You got can't three make words. me do a one-word answer. <laughs> we've, we've, okay, so as, as part of the group with Greg Goodman who published the paper um, that with, with the very non-controversial title of um, Aspiration and Exercise and Futility in an Unsafe Practice. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can imagine. Yeah. Okay. However, I do think it is much more nuanced than that. And I think that um, it's, this is something we could do pretty much a whole podcast yeah, on. I think so. I think mm-hmm. we really do. Right. Okay. Yeah. So if you look at the early studies of um, the Casabona study, the Carey study, going to Van Loggum's study, um, Wang and Torbeck, um, we went through them in detail and learned a lot about them by getting a statistician's opinion on them. It was it was absolutely fascinating. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what those studies show. Um, and I, th- I heard recently someone say, oh, the Casabona study showed that 53% of fillers, um, you could get a positive aspiration with 53% of fillers. That shows you that you can halve your rate of vascular occlusion by aspirating. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what that study shows. So those studies are designed to make sure aspiration occurs and they're designed to take away a heap of the variabilities that can prevent aspiration. Um, And they're more of a proof of concept than anything else. They don't study aspiration in vivo. They don't study Mm. aspiration as it happens. Um, And however, the alternative of moving needle there is also a lack of evidence, and I want to be really clear about that. So there is a lack of evidence um, in this area that means that there is a lot of debate. Um, But I think the key concept to understand is that injecting with a very still needle, a large bolus, could potentially be the best way to propagate filler into an artery. Um, And Certainly my, my views are affected by my experience with ultrasound and doing ultrasound-guided sclerotherapy and watching the interaction between my needle and the vessel on ultrasound as I attempted to get my needle into the vessel and inject stuff down it. So it's really interesting because I remember speaking to Greg about this a few years ago and he's yeah. probably right. He said, even those people who are trying to find a fixed point to do their aspiration are probably moving. Because you can't, like, you're not a robot. You can't keep something yeah, exactly space moves as well. And yeah. so I've always kind of thought, well, you know, you're doing it as best as you can as a fixed point. But if you're still moving, you're kind of incorporating this oscillation thing that you guys are talking about in your paper, but, but maybe not purposefully. But I don't know. I, I don't know where I, I, I stand I, with all of this. Yeah, look, it's uh, Jake, I, I think that we need a whole lot more information under ultrasound. And there's an interesting um, follow-up to the paper that's been just been accepted for publication 
Um, maybe you might need to get Franklin on to talk about it. Dr. Mm-hmm. Franklin yeah. um, has done some really interesting stuff about movement of the needle during aspiration as shown on ultrasound. Um, so there's a paper coming out about that that I think bears looking at. Um, and I think that the difficult thing is, is it, it's turned into two camps. Of, yeah. <laughs> of, uh, and really people what get it, extremely it, emotional about this. Particularly they do. When, they get so emotional about it. And yeah. I think the hard thing is, is it ends up being um, eminence-based medicine rather than evidence-based medicine. And that that means that it, at the moment, opinions are um, firm and great in this area and that there is a lack of evidence yeah. in both areas so, uh, for knowing exactly what happens down underneath the tissues. So to answer the question, are you a no, a no aspiration? Okay, so I aspirate in one area and I'm greatly criticised by people who don't. No, I actually do that area with cannula. So Jake was just pointing to the, the <laughs> piriform aperture and yeah. I actually treat the piriform aperture with cannula and I do aspirate with cannula, Jake. It makes total sense to me because if wild. you're in an artery, you're not going to easily <laughs> move out of the artery and... <laughs> I've had a positive aspiration with a cannula in so, the temple. But I, hold on. I, so I are you, you're, you're in where you think is the right layer to inject, so deeper, Correct. presumably, but you're yes. bolusing with your cannula? I actually move my cannula slightly while I'm doing that, but I, I um, is, is, if I was in a vessel, I would be likely moving within the vessel. Yes. But So I'm moving my cannula more for aesthetic reasons okay. um, than... I, I, we've got to do a podcast on this. Yeah, this is do. too much. You do. You so do. Um, also, I just want to talk about, so aspirating with a cannula, I really want to see some studies with that about the ability to aspirate with a cannula because, um, so I was doing a temple on a patient who had a facelift and I talked to her in detail about the risks about, because it was tethered down and I was doing the, the technique subcutaneous diluted voluma and um, aspirated and got a massive flashback and said to the patient, holy, I'm crapping myself here. <laughs> this is coming out. We're not doing any more. Um, expect a massive bruise in this area. I put pressure on the area. It looked like it was going to bruise. She went home um, and did not get a single bruise. <laughs> and I think what I did is I think I aspirated a hematoma. Right. Mm, I don't think I was intravascular. Mm. So I, yeah, fascinating, huh? So um, this is an area that we need so much more information about. Yeah. Um, but so and to answer you, the, the area where I do aspirate is the temple. Yeah. But the one by one Arthur Swift technique where you are going down onto the periosteum, I aspirate because my needle tips on periosteum. We know that the anterior deep temporal artery is in that vicinity. Mm-hmm. That's usually quite a large artery. And my needle is well anchored with lots of soft tissue. So I think that gives me, what I worry about with the oscillations is what if I'm right in the middle of the anterior deep temporal artery? And what about if it's three millimeters and my oscillations are not enough? So I want to know at that first moment whether I'm right in the middle of that artery and I have been criticized by Stephen Lou on stage about this. He's like, what the hell are you doing, Sarah? And I'm like, oh, you know, big stakes here. So I aspirate and then I oscillate. Did you speak about that in your paper? No, my, no. So with these um, consensus papers, I think Mark Magnuson said, I, I aspirate in the temple as well. Um, in these <laughs> consensus papers, you have to come to an agreement, right? And so if there is a little bit of variation in the authors, you need to still come to an agreement. And even though it might not be your personal practice, 
um, you, you might be the outliers in the group of authors. And I think um, in that group of authors, there are people who don't aspirate anywhere. And then there are some people who aspirate in some places. And what I wonder whether is that once we know more is that there might be one or two spots on the place on the face where aspiration is a little bit useful. Yeah. And then other places where we thought it was useful, but it totally isn't. The key is though, is I don't think aspiration gives you as much information about where your needle tip is that you think it does. Sure. But I, I, I don't the key believe is the movement of the needle. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, I mean, so don't, I, just don't do big still boluses after you aspirate. That's you can if you totally can aspirate, but if you then move your needle a little bit, then then I'll be happy. I know that there are a lot of people who will be for oscillating or moving the needle, and then we yep. use the lip as the example to say, look, we're yep. always moving in a lip, and we never aspirate, yep. and that's why it's so stupid. And yet we know yep. that the lip is one of the most common areas to get VOs. Yep. So. But isn't that because of the vascularity? We don't know. So recently there's a paper by the ASDA, American Society of Dermatologic uh, Surgery. Uh, it was published in Derm Surge, I think. A lot of very prominent people, um, Derek Jones, Jean Carruthers, Noel Solish, um, Stephen Dyan, lots of very knowledgeable, oh, Becky Fitzgerald, very knowledgeable. In their list of things to do to avoid vascular occlusion, aspiration is not included. Mm. Mm. Yes. But moving the needle is well. Mm. More, 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 more <laughs> to come. Thank God. Oh! <laughs> so <laughs> I, I would like to say that this is an un. You know, you know, I'm part of the. You know, I, 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 I totally agree that, that that it makes no sense to um, aspirate and think you're safe and okay to do a large bolus. I, I will say, sort of final comment. There have been a lot of people who contacted me after reading your consensus paper. And like, yep. this is wild. Those Australians <laughs> are fucking crazy. I know. <laughs> Subio called us gangster. It was so funny. So Subio put it on his Instagram and went, oh my God, these guys are gangster. And I'm like, no, we're not. We're nerds. But hey, I like it. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, last question. What book or course or, or otherwise has most improved your practice, do you reckon? What's been most influential? Oh God, that's really hard. Um, or in a conference, I guess. Yeah, I just it's it's so kind of like a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there, a little bit there. You know, I just think it's like climbing up a mountain one step at a time, and everything that you do helps. Uh, but I, if anything, I would say that the MD codes mentorship. Oh, are you going to say this? Pushed me. Yeah. It pushed me out beyond. of your comfort zone. Oh yeah. Yeah, out of my comfort zone. And I know that's contrary. And I don't do MD codes everything, right? Because I, you know, you know, I do my own thing. I've got my own lip technique and that's not codes, blah, blah, blah. But it it made me do things I wouldn't have done otherwise. And it made me examine and think obsessively about things for quite some time. And listening to the IA podcast, obviously. Of course. Obviously. Oh, the the IA podcast, I love. <laughs> Guys, I, I love what you're doing. And I think that all of the time that you devote to this is amazing for all of us. We're really grateful for it. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. I, I actually had no idea you listened regularly. I knew you'd listen to, you know, a couple. Oh, of you were so funny. I, I, I had no idea how to listen to a podcast. And you were <laughs> like, oh, I'm a Gen X. I don't know what to do. And, and you were very patient with me. Uh, I think in the early days of the hive, I pretty much forced everyone to listen. I was like, guys, listen to this. Yeah. This is a good one. And 
I probably just forced people by banging them over the head with it. Yeah. <laughs> also, look, the COVID lockdowns totally helped as well because yeah. it just meant that life was just lots less crazy. 100%. Yeah. Well, cool. Thank you so much for joining. That was a great podcast. Really enjoyed it. I mean, parting comments, David? No, I mean, it's just great to, you know, finally meet you because I've heard so much about you over the years and it's great to hear that you're taking that next step in your in your journey. Very excited for you to have your own rooms and looking forward to having you back one day soon. You can tell us about the raging success that it's been and more lessons learned. <laughs> or maybe we'll, we'll talk more about aspiration. We'll, we'll get you on the, the pro-oscillator side of the yes. debate when we do the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Love it. Thanks, guys. It's been Great. really fun. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. See you later. Bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 